If you have read the book or you have seen the, the movie of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's a, it's a great book, it's a great movie, and there's a scene that's very important where four kids are talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And in the scene, they tell the four children about Aslan. I remember talking to somebody who read the book one time, and, and she was not a Christian. She said to me, I totally didn't understand the book. It's supposed to be a Christian book. I didn't get it at all. And I said, Aslan is Jesus. And she went, oh, that totally makes sense. So they were talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, were telling them about Aslan, who is the Christ figure in Lewis's novel, and that he is the king of the forest. And what they explained to these kids is that he's not a man. He is a lion. And a young girl by the name of Susan says this, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then, that, and then Mrs. Beaver says, That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, let's try and remember that, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Matthew chapter 23 is a chapter that I think many people wish was not in the, in the word of God. Last week we had quite a number of laughs about some funny different things, but as we continue now in the chapter, there's really not much to laugh about, and a lot of people would like to avoid Matthew chapter 23 because it's not safe. Yep, I just said it. I agree with Lewis. King Jesus is not always safe. This is a knee-knocking chapter, so you might think it weird that I prayed for some of you that you would go home today with your knees knocking. And it reminds us of, of the consequences of not taking Jesus and the word of God seriously. And this chapter reminds us of something that is extremely sobering that I don't know that a lot of us are really aware of, or if we are aware of, that we don't think about it very much. And that is simply this. The biggest danger to the church of Jesus Christ is not the government. The biggest danger to the church of Jesus Christ is not the culture. The biggest danger to the church of Jesus Christ is false teachers and false spiritual leaders that infiltrate the church. We said last time that this is Jesus' last public sermon. He will be talking just alone with the disciples after this, the last public sermon before the cross. And it is a warning to the church and as I was thinking it through, I had a different plan of preaching it, but I was thinking it would be unloving of me not to warn you as Jesus does. To be honest, if you never came on a Wednesday night, you probably don't believe I can do it. I can preach through large sections of the Bible and, and go, go fairly quickly and not seem like I'm, I'm rushing it. But I wanted to, and I had planned to zip through 26 verses of this heavy stuff point out the flaws of the religious leaders, and then move on to the end time stuff that is in chapter 24. But I was convicted of this. 
To be like Jesus is to warn like Jesus. And when Jesus invites, we invite. When Jesus warns, we warn. Ultimately, if you read your Bible carefully, you'll see that a lot of what Jesus does is he warns and then he invites. These warnings and applications for the religious leaders, as well as they are for each one of us, are truly a gift from God. Now, that may sound very odd to you because we have to remember that God's warnings, God's pointing out our sin, is not trying to belittle us or smack us down, maybe to to humble us some, but is really inviting us into intimacy, inviting us to know him at at a deeper level. And if you read ahead, you probably, some of you probably, some people probably read ahead and said, I'm not going for that. But if you read ahead, you're probably thinking, how could any of this be good? How could any of this be possible? But it's important to remember when you read the Bible, a lot of times you will see sin in the Bible and realize that the Lord wants us to do the opposite. But before we just go jump to doing the opposite, it's important to think, do we do this? Or do we even think this? It's also important as we go through these woes that we're going to be talking about that we see the heart of Jesus. And the heart of Jesus is found at the end of this section. Look at verse 37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And so the title of our message today is, uh, it's supposed to be a two-part message. I hope it will be. It may, be, it may end up being three. You never know. But the title of our message is, excuse me, <clears throat> From Woes to Worship, Part 1. And so what we have here is we have Jesus exposing the dead religion of the, of the religious leaders. The stuff that he has said to them last week, the stuff that he's saying to them now, it's, it's undeniable. But as well as there is an invitation at the end, we just read, to be gathered in as a child of God. After the religious leaders had interrogated Jesus, we had covered that in the weeks previously, uh, we, we saw that Jesus has now been speaking to the disciples and the crowds, warning them about the religious leaders and not to be like the religious leaders. Jesus has singled out two groups here, these scribes, let's call them the Bible experts, and the Pharisees, Let's call them the super spiritual crowd. And these two of all the different types of religious leaders that Jesus meets throughout his travels are the most popular of all the religious leaders. Now, if you're a Bible reader in this modern age, you think, oh, those guys are the villains. But if you put yourself back 2,000 years ago, these guys were highly respected in the community. I mean, you're you're a Jewish mother or father, and you're raising your son, and you're like little Jacob Don't you someday want to be a Pharisee in the synagogue? Don't you want to sit in the seat of Moses and read the scripture to the people? Sadly, this text and and others have been used to legitimize anti-Semitism by many. This may strike you as odd. Recently, I was reading some of the anti-Semitic remarks of Adolf Hitler and how often he used the name of Christ and Christianity, calling himself a Christian. And because of what the Jews had done to Jesus Christ, that's why he wanted to do the same thing to the Jews. And the Ku Klux Klan 
figures out much of the same stuff. They use some of the same stuff for their anti-Semitism. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we're really glad that you're here today. I hope you hear that and you say, that is just ignorance. And you know, most Bible scholars would tell you the same thing. But they would tell you it's ignorance for a different reason. Often that comes from the misreading of the term, the Jews, in the New Testament. See, when, when these guys who are anti-Semites in the name of Christianity talk about the Jews, they talk about a national group of people. But when you read the scriptures, most of the time, not all of the time, but almost all of the time, the, the term the Jews refers to the religious leaders who are rejecting Jesus. Refers to the religious leaders that are plotting against Jesus. And so one of the big criticisms that Jesus has of the religious leaders is their failure to rightly understand and apply the scripture. And what they do is they don't understand, they don't apply it correctly, and then they export their false teaching to other people. They have become blinded by their rules and their rituals and their traditions and their positions to the point where they reject Jesus as the Messiah and they encourage others to do the same. So Jesus pronounces a series of woes against these religious leaders. And woes is one of those words that changes meaning over time. If you're a little bit older, people used to say, woe is me when things were going wrong. Or that you're a little bit younger, it's like, whoa, whoa, easy there, buddy, easy. And so woes in Jesus' time was a word that condemned evil and in this case expresses Christ's sorrow over what's going on. A woe is a word that pronounces judgment, but as we just read, it's also an invitation to repent, to turn to Jesus, to stop rejecting him and trust him as the Messiah. We'll notice over and over again that Jesus is going to refer to them as hypocrites, Hypocrites, really, that's the, the word where we get our word actor from. Now, for years, I'm sure that people would say, you're walking down the street and you say to someone, uh, what do you do for a living? And you say, you're an actor. So that's, that's fine. That, that's, that's what they do. That's how, that's how they earn a living. But this word hypocrite has changed meaning over time. When you go into New York City and someone's a waiter or a waitress, that usually translates to they're an actor because that's what most people who are in the city they're doing, and God bless them, there's only so many jobs, but I, I say, well, good for you. You're out there, you're working hard, you're trying to make the, the best of it till, until you get your, your break. But sadly, the word hypocrite from the word actor has, has come to mean the way we think of it as a deceiver. Now, we often say it's one person, it's someone who does one thing, or says one thing, and does another. That's what we think of a hypocrite, correct? But did you know we all do that? We all do that. Did you ever say you were going to do something and just forget? And just forget. Well, are you a hypocrite? Are you a hypocrite? Well, you know what that could be? I think that goes under the area of what we might call weakness. We all have certain weaknesses that we have. And, and so a, a weakness and, and, a hip, and hypocrisy are not the same thing. Let's think of weakness as the, as the human frailty that we all have. We all have the capacity to forget, don't we? Or we're afraid sometimes when, when we shouldn't be. 
We're not, we're not deliberately doing things. A hypocrite, how would they differ? It's funny that they really, it, sh it should be flipped. A hypocrite is someone who says, um, you know, oh, I, I'm just weak. They say they're going to do something. They don't really intend to do it, or they're consciously not going to do it. They're not going to try to keep their word, and they just say, I'm weak. They hide behind it, and that's it. Case closed. That's enough. I don't really care. The weak is someone who says, when they make a mistake, oh, no, I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> but, but the reality is, is that sometimes we just forget. We're just weak. But the way Jesus uses it, it it's really the, the person who puts on the false face of religion for their own advantage. They, they try and look very, very spiritual. It's like, you know, I told a couple of years ago, I was at a neighborhood party in this woman comes up to me, and she's just completely drunk. I always say drunk is a skunk, but I don't know how drunk skunks get. But she says to me, you're the pastor, aren't you? I said, guilty as charged. And she says, I'm very religious. I said, I can see that. <laughs> I can see that. Right? So, uh, but, you know, that, that's just the way some people are. I talked to her husband recently. He goes, we can have another party. You were a very interesting guy at the party. I said, I don't really know how to take that, but uh, just invite me and I'll show up. And, and, and so, it, you know, trying to, people trying to put on a false face. But there's another kind of hypocrisy that is equally, or I would say more dangerous than just trying to do something for your own advantage. I would call it a sincere hypocrisy. And that is, that is someone who has really fooled themselves, and now they're out to fool others. They think they're following God, but they're not. And here you notice that Jesus doesn't say, oh, oh, we have to, we have to give them grace. No, what does he do? He, he calls them out. Now, this is a very interesting th thing to me. Um, in our generation, I think many people would come to passages like this, and they think about what we might call, you know, remember last week we said we're low church at Calvary, we think of high church, you, know, you think of the guys with the hats and the robes and the, and the beads, we used to call them hippies back when I was a kid, but now we call them overly religious people, but I think it's easy for us to, to just put the blame on, on them, um, but what about people who are, who are morally lax or just lax in every area of their life and call themselves believers, call themselves Christians. Isn't that, isn't that hypocritical? And, and you say, well, well, but they have an answer for it. And what's their answer? Well, God forgives everyone. You know, I learned that God, when he died on the cross and we put our trust in him, that he, he forgave us our sins past, present, and future. Yes, he did. He did. But does that mean that we are to continue to sin so grace should abound? The Apostle Paul asked that question, and we're supposed to go, no, no. <laughs> Some people go, yes, yes. And, and what do they do? They hide behind grace. And grace is a, a wonderful and, and complex word in, in the word of God. Yet sometimes I fear, maybe that's just my own personal human weakness, but sometimes I fear that we've watered down that word grace in the church, and it's, it's lost its meaning. I believe some of the religious leaders were sincere. Why do I believe that? I look at Nicodemus coming to Jesus in John chapter 3. I look at Joseph of Arimathea giving his tomb for Jesus to be buried and knowing that he will lose faith with the other religious leaders. But many, many people are sincere, but sincerely wrong. 
And Jesus calls them out on it and invites them and their followers to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Maybe that's you here today. Maybe you need to let today and next week be your time to move from the woes that Jesus is going to talk about to the worship of Jesus. To move from the place where Jesus is not safe to the place where he is safe. So we come to verse 13. It's the first of seven or eight woes. You say, Pastor Jim, you don't know how to count yet? Well, that's partially true. That's because verse 14 is not in all of your Bibles because it's not in all of the manuscripts. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So, but let's deal with verse 13 first. Jesus speaking, but woe to you, Jesus speaking in the, in the, um, in, in the sense of an old, in the spirit of an Old Testament prophet, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, I know the way a lot of us think of Jesus, like he's just so laid back and so chill. He's like, you know, yo, dude, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, man. I don't think that's the way it's going down. I don't think that's the way it's going down at all. I think he's raising his voice. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then we see why he is so upset. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. And then listen to the judgment he proclaims. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You know, sometimes people say, I read the Bible, I don't really understand it. Well, Jesus couldn't be more crystal clear here. He's saying that false teachers and false leaders shut the door of the kingdom of God to people while claiming they are the guys who hold the keys. Remember we said last week, they like to be called father. And what we said, what was father? Father was the one who was the giver of life. And so they like to be the guys who said, we have the keys to the kingdom. We are the givers of life. But the the keys to the kingdom are the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Last week we said that they, Jesus said, you sit in the seat of Moses That was the seat of true authority in the synagogue. But Jesus said, but you misrepresent the law of Moses. You misrepresent what we know as the Old Testament to people to make yourselves look good. And so what is Jesus saying here? You are to be a help to people to get into the kingdom of God, but you have become a hindrance to people to get into the kingdom of God. You lead people away from God In the name of God. And notice, Jesus does not allow any excuses for that at all. Notice Jesus' judgment on them. He says, for neither or neither do you go in yourselves. Why? Well, because they had closed the door themselves by rejecting the Messiah, Jesus. I mean, that's how people close the door. People say, well, why wouldn't God let me into heaven? Because you closed the door. You close the door. And so without having the experience of walking into the door, these religious leaders are unable to help people enter the door themselves because they don't know what that is like. As we learned earlier in our studies in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is not just a place, but it is the reign of Jesus Christ on earth and in heaven. 
And, and it's the reign of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And, he, and Jesus says, you have refused entrance yourself. So this woe is symbolic of divine judgment. And Jesus, speaking as God himself, makes the judgment. And then he points out something that perhaps is the worst of all. He says, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. What is he saying? They're entering, but they're not allowed to go in? What's going on? These are people who are interested in God, and these guys shut the door on them. These are people who are on the pathway to knowing Jesus Christ, and they shut the door on them. Let me give you an example that we encountered back in Matthew chapter 12. You can either turn there or we'll put the verses up on the screen. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, we read... Then one was brought to him who to Jesus who was demonic who was demon possessed blind and mute and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw So there's a guy he can't speak he can't see and Jesus heals him verse 23 and all the multitudes were amazed and said could this be the son of David Now that was a name for the Messiah So they heard what Jesus had to say. They saw what he was able to do. He was able to back up his teaching with his miracles. And and is it possible that something about the truth of Jesus is now beginning to be awakened in them? They start asking the question, who is this guy? Could this be the guy? Could this be the one that we're waiting for? What's going on? Maybe that's you right now, friend. You're there. You are right there. You're wondering, is this the one? But there's other people in your life that are trying to talk you out of it. They're trying to say, forget about it. Don't start following Jesus. We've been doing, it's okay. God lets everybody go to heaven. Jesus is saying, no, you shut the door when you don't don't receive me as the Savior. And look at verse 24. Watch the door get slammed right in their face. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So what are they saying? This guy's from the devil. They're thinking, could this be the one? And they're like, hey, we're the religious leaders. We know what the deal is. We know what's going on. Forget that guy. He's from the devil. So as the people begin to think about who Jesus is. As maybe some of them say, you know what, maybe this is the guy we need to follow. What do they do? They talk them out of it. How common is that today? How common has that been for some of you? People tried to talk you out of following Jesus. Stop all that silliness. What are you you going on about? It's like the religious leaders are standing at the door to heaven. And they're not going in. They're like, no, we're not buying it. We're not going in. But then when other people come up and they have questions about the door or they want to walk in the door, what do they do? They stand right in front of the door. And they don't let anybody go in. They talk you out of it. Oh, come on, your family's believed this for years. You've been believing this for years. People have been following this for years. You know what's right. Don't you feel guilty? Don't you feel terrible? Aren't you going to be upset about walking into the door of Jesus? Stay away from this man. How do they block the door? There's all different kinds of ways they do it. False teaching, lies, spreading the gospel of unbelief, 
perverting the gospel, saying you have to do all this right, this ritual. If you do this and that, then God will, will take you in. Instead of preaching the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are saved, the Apostle Paul wrote, by grace, it's a gift of God. That's it. And how do you get it? Through faith. You grab a hold of it by putting your trust in Jesus Christ. But as we said last week, these religious leaders believed that you were in the family by birth and you stayed in by works. And people tell me all the time, I, God's going to take me because of all the good stuff I do. I always go, really? Do tell. <laughs> what do you mean, do tell? Tell me. You do a lot of good works. I'd like to know. I'd like to know. And, uh, and they're like, oh, I, I, I go to church and I put money in the offering. And I'm like, well, how much? <laughs> and they're like, I, I don't know. I go, oh, five bucks? Well, <laughs> five bucks, right? Is that a new Lexus in the driveway, man? Very generous, very generous. Your generosity is only exceeded by your good looks. That's what my mother used to tell me all the time when I was being stingy. So yeah, a lot of people think they have good works, but they really don't. But they swear they're doing these guys, and a lot of people swear they're doing God's work. And we see it in churches. Jesus says they're turning people away from the kingdom. How does it happen? Well, you got pastors and, and, and teachers with their own agenda. They have their own belief system, so they've sort of tossed the Bible aside, and they're saying, well, this is what I think. They try to sound smart. Take it from a guy who's learned this lesson the hard way. Every time you try and sound smart about Jesus, you make a complete idiot of yourself. And if you don't believe me, you weren't paying attention in the last two chapters. Because every time the religious leaders came, right, and tried to look smart, they end up being completely stupid. Or else, what do they do? They, they, change, the, they change what's going on in the Bible. We're, we're witnessing this happening right before our eyes, loved ones. Look at the most famous preachers in America and how many of the sermons are about you. How many of the sermons are about what God will do for you? And you look and you say, well, look at all the people that go there. I mean, it can't be all, all that bad. But what they don't tell you is, is that as a whole crowd of people come in to hear all the stuff you can get, there's a whole crowd of people who are leaving because they didn't get it. And there's all kinds of that stuff going on. Even the sermon titles, God will do this for you, God will do that for you. Whatever happened to childlike faith? Remember Jesus said that? Jesus said, you want to come in? You want to come in? You got to trust me like a child. The way, the way a child, you know, uh, believes in me and, and, and trusts their, their father, their heavenly father. Sadly, the, the Pharisee spirit is alive and well in the church in America. And I don't mean people promising that you have to do a bunch of rules and rituals. That's in some parts of the church. But, but, but there's other things where we're going to just tweak God's word. And that, that's, you know, been around a long time, but it's alive and well. But i got to tell you something that, that I was really convicted of in the weeks past, that, that while the spirit of, of Phariseeism is alive and well in the church, the spirit of Matthew 23 doesn't even seem like it's on the table. Nobody wants to call out the false teachers anymore. Nobody wants to say, well, th this, is, this is wrong. 
So you say, well, what, what, what were they supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? We are to point people to the door. And the door is not a hinge thing on hinges. The door is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not to make it harder for people to enter, but at the same time, we have to be honest about what it takes to enter, that we have to turn from our sin and put our trust in Jesus Christ and what the Christian life entails. So often we're not honest with people about repentance, that yes, there's certain things that you're going to have to stop to do, stop doing. We're not always entirely honest about the good news of the gospel and what it really is. And the temptation is to tell people what they want to hear. And then we wonder why they're not truly converted. Then why we, want, we wonder why, you know, a few months later, a few weeks later, a few years later, they really want nothing to do with, with God anymore. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, the door has been opened to you. That's why Jesus Christ died on the cross and it's the reason why you can, uh, he invites you into the kingdom of heaven today. Now, verse 14 is not in all of your Bibles. Again, it doesn't mean that you need a new one. But actually, it is in your Bible. It's in your Bible. If it's not in the Bible that you have in front of you in Matthew chapter 23, it's actually in Mark chapter 12, verse 40, and in Luke chapter 20, verse 47. It says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Well, there you have the original TV preachers. There they are. Nothing new under the sun. Guy's been doing this stuff for a long time, and there they are. And then what we'll talk about in a minute, therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. Now, verse 14 is not in some of your Bibles because it depends upon which manuscripts they're using to, to write the translation that you have. And, and what, sometimes there are what we call scribal additions or scribal deletions, meaning that they, they didn't have the, you know, you didn't cut and paste back then. Thank God for put, cut and paste, right? And so we, we, we have times where they would add stuff in because they would know, well, I know the other gospel writer said it, Matthew must have just forgot, or they would sometimes forget to put something in. So let's just go over that just briefly. Um, so here, it could be, if it's an addition, it could be, you know, the, the writer, one of the scribes, read it elsewhere in the Bible, in the same scene, Jesus in the temple, talking to the people, and he added it in. Now, when we read the Bible, one of the things that people say a lot about the Bible inconsistencies is people record Jesus saying one thing in one place, and then in another place, he's saying it slightly differently. Now, the meaning is the same, so that would mean that they're just, you know, remembering it a little bit differently, but it doesn't change the meaning. You know, or it could mean that they're not exactly talking about the same circumstance. We have multiple services here, so one service is different than the other. You people, the last service, so unfortunately for you, I talked the longest in the last service. You'd be like, oh, that's why the early service is so much more crowded. <laughs> so, so but, but, but what happens is, like any good preacher, Jesus repeated himself. So he would maybe talk about something in the morning in one town, and then in the afternoon to the same, to another group of people. 
He would talk about it in one town, then he would move on to another town. He'd talk at one point in his ministry, then he would talk about another point in the time in his ministry. And the disciples, thick as a brick, needed to hear it over and over and over again because that's what any good preacher does. They repeat themselves, and, and not all the Bible writers record all of the same sayings, plus they often address different topics. So again, some teachings are repeated in different settings for new crowds, and others mentioned over and over again for us to hear. In this case, Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus said it the same day, but they connect it to the story of the widow's two mites. And so, and so they connect it to the story of the religious leaders trying to look good through their generosity, parading up front, letting everybody know how much they threw into the offering box. And then one woman comes along, or you have these big brass things, so if you threw a lot of change in, people could hear it and be like, wow, listen to all that. You know, guy's emptying his pockets out with money he stole from people and throwing it in. And so then you'd have this woman comes up and she throws in a couple pennies. Jesus grabs everybody and says, hey, did everybody see that? Did everybody see that? That's true generosity. That's not what Matthew is talking about here at all. He's talking about how these guys try and look good and woe to them. You can tell a lot about a religious leader by the way they view money. A lot about it. If they're talking about it all the time, you're in a bad, bad place, let me tell you. Now, people come here, they go, oh, I love it here, Pastor Jim. You don't pass the plate and you don't talk about money. Well, wait till the text is about money. Right? I'll be like a dog who hasn't eaten in a week like I am on every passage. Right? So, 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 but, but a guy who defers to money every time, trying to tell you you can be rich, be very careful. Or let me be more explicit. Head for the door. Watch your wallet. You're about to get your pocket picked. And what they don't tell you is there's a lot of people who come in and leave, come in and leave, come in and leave because it doesn't work for them. See, Jesus says that, you know the way they love prestige? They love money the same way too. And and he says here, look at what they do to get it. Now, before we took it, what, what he says that what they do to get it, let's understand that there's a principle here. Don't what they do is so low and underhanded, and Jesus takes as about as low and underhanded as you can get to make his point. He's saying they will do, they will say. Whatever it takes to take your money from you. Now, you want to give money to the work of the Lord? Praise the Lord. You participate in everything that goes on here, and it credits to your account, the Apostle Paul taught us. But he's saying you got to watch out for these guys. And he tells right here, what do they do? They They devour widows' houses. They're predators. They are greedy predators. And they will do whatever it takes to take your money And so what they would do is they would take money from widows. They would lose their husband and they would go to comfort them. And then widows would give them money for their counsel. Jesus says they steal from them and they act spiritual about it with long prayers. They pray on them, P-R-E-Y, instead of praying for them, P-R-A-Y. But Jesus knew this was going on for years, and so did they. It's in Isaiah 10, Amos 2, Micah 3. These false shepherds have been fleecing the flock. And it still continues today. 
sow a seed, sow a seed into this ministry. You know, this guy's like, if you don't donate, this ministry is going to close today. I'm like, hallelujah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. It's closing. <laughs> right? Just unbelievable. Touch the television. Just, just touch the television and sow a seed and send us money and you will be blessed. You get rich. Sow a seed. Send us money and God will return it tenfold. And then when it doesn't happen, you didn't have enough faith. Boy, what a Ponzi scheme that is, right? That's the shell game in New York City all the way. I've told you this story before, but some of you who are new, you haven't heard it. But my, my son and I one time were up. He was about five, my oldest. And we were getting ready for church one time. And uh, we were ready. Pam was getting ready. And, and Jessica was getting ready. Tim wasn't born yet. And so I used to watch TV preachers before I was in the ministry and watch TV preachers. My wife's like, why do you watch those guys? I'm like, so I can tell people and warn them about them. And this guy's like, Send me $15 today, and you'll get the prayer handkerchief. And you'll get all your prayers answered. And never be sick again. Never have a need again. $15. I'm like, I would just keep all those prayer handkerchiefs for myself, man. <laughs> That's what I would do. And my son is five. And guess what? He's sitting on my lap. Guess what he says to me? He just wants their money. The emperor has no clothes. <laughs> right? That's what that is. That's what that is. And you see them on the, they got, in the middle of the night, they got the phone things going on. They're like the, the telethons, right? Oh, this woman called in. Sister so-and-so, tell us the story. Oh, she called in. She's healed. Hallelujah. She's healed. She's okay. She's, she's all better. And they're like, oh, this is wonderful. Send us a seed. Sow us a seed. Let us, let us pray. You know, with a lot of those guys, you don't even know it, but a lot of times uh, they might not do it on the television show, the guys that are getting a little bit smarter, but they're smarter when they send you an envelope back to give more money. A lot of times they go to P.O. boxes. I remember Robert Tilton was exposed by, I think it was 60 Minutes or one of those things, where what was happening is the P.O. box was actually a bank drop box. If you know what a bank drop box is, it takes your check, they open your check, the check goes into your bank account, and anything else in the envelope goes in the garbage. So you put in your prayer request, and guess what? It's going to a bank, check goes into the bank, and your prayer request goes into the garbage. It's terrible. They make millions. Sorry, wrong choice of words. They steal millions. Instead of having compassion on people the way the Lord did. So look at the end of verse 14. Therefore, you will receive a greater condemnation. You know, every once in a while, I think I'd like to write my own translation of the Bible. And and this one, I would be like, the Lord's going to torch you, man. (laughs) Serious. But notice here, he says you're going to receive a greater condemnation. The the scripture does teach that there is a greater degree of punishment in hell. And these guys are going to be burning like you can't believe. Notice Jesus has no tolerance for so many of the people that the church thinks is so awesome. Oh, but they're reading right out of the Bible. You don't understand. So did these guys. A lot of them had the first five books of Moses memorized. We're like, I can't remember one verse. They're remembering books of the Bible. See, the truth is, is that religion is not going to protect anyone from the wrath of God against sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can protect you. 
So we must lovingly tell our friends what Jesus said in Matthew 15, 14, that following these blind teachers, you will end up in a ditch. That's what's going to happen to you. Once again, we see how Jesus preaches judgment to religious hypocrites, and in other places, how he offers love to sinners. God reserves a huge judgment, maybe the worst judgment of all, for religious leaders who seek fame and fortune and not the kingdom of God for the people of God. But, and this is a very important but for all of us to apply to ourselves and to our friends, but Jesus also puts a responsibility on their hearers and their followers to leave their influence. And maybe that means you're going to have to have a hard conversation with some people. To say, listen, I believe that you are under the influence of false teaching. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. What's that? That's a convert. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woo! That's a smoking verse, isn't it? Now, travel in Jesus' day was not easy, and the Jews were not seafaring people. They did not like the sea, but he says, you'll travel land and sea to win one convert. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know the effort that you put into this. Now, it's interesting. Historically, the Jews have worked hard at this at times to make converts, and other times, basically not at all. A month or two ago, I was talking to a thinking about this passage, talking about to an Orthodox Jew that I know, and I, I asked him about this. I said, are you trying to convert a lot of people to Orthodox Judaism? Are you trying to convent a lot, convert a lot of people like me, Gentiles? And this is what he said to me. He goes, actually, right now, we're not even having anything to do with the Gentiles as far as conversion do. He says, we're trying to get our own people to come back to the faith. So many of them have become cultural Jews instead of practicing Jews. But Jesus' day was a period of high activity. And Jesus' point is simply this. You're not converting them to Yahwehism. You're converting them to Phariseeism. They were indoctrinating people who were, by the way, looking for God into their own false teaching and their, own mis- and their misrepresentation of God. Now, Jesus' criticism is not of their missionary efforts. We should take note of a lot of the missionary efforts that a lot of false teaching organizations are about. They're very, very serious about it. This was the Apostle Paul's method. He went all over the Roman Empire, traveling on road and sea to make converts. But look at what Jesus says the result of your efforts are. You make your converts twice as much a son of of hell as yourselves. You bring them to the point where they are no longer even able to hear the gospel. Now, in those days, there were generally, generally two types of converts. The first is what we call, or they called, a proselyte or a convert of the gate. We have a lot of those in the world today. They're, they're, the, they're the people who gave up on paganism and went to synagogue. You know the people, they're party animals, weekend war, party animals in college, weekend warriors when they get out of college, and then they get kids and figure maybe we should get that little one some religion. So they figure, well, we'll go to church once in a while. I guess it's good for the kids, and uh, maybe we shouldn't, you know, party as much in the house. It's not, it's not good for them. 
Now, you, you see, actually, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, you might want to write this down for the next time you're reading through the book of Acts, they're referred to as worshipers of God. Worshippers of God. So they're people who are kind of interested in the God of Judaism. They, they want to know more, but they're not all in. They're not all in. And that's actually the kind of people you want to preach to. You want to reach people who are interested, but they're not all in some crazy system. Others, and there's far fewer of them in, the, in this time, and there's far fewer of them now. It's but what's what the Pharisees wanted. They call them proselytes or converts of the right of righteousness. That's what Jesus is talking about here. These are the guys who are all in. I mean, they are all in. They'll do anything you ask them to do, right? I, I'm in, man. And, and they're like, you know, they're, they're 40 years old. I'm in. Circumcision, I'm in. Rites, rituals, I'm in. Whatever it takes. Jesus says they're not all in. They're all out. They're completely out. Instead of climbing the stairway to heaven, okay, Led Zeppelin fans, come back. (laughs) Instead of climbing the stairway to heaven, they fell into the trap door of hell following the false teachings, the false leading, the false rules, and the false rituals of men. Let me give you an example from history. In the 1300s, the bubonic plague broke out in the city of London. People were going to the doctors, and all the doctors decided they had a cure. And they told the people the cure was to get out of the city and to go out into the country and get some fresh air. That sounds good, doesn't it? What did they bring to the country? The bubonic plague. And the people who didn't have it before ended up getting it. They spread the plague. Hosea 4.6, the Lord says this, My people are destroyed for... Lack of knowledge. Spiritual knowledge is important, and a lack of it is dangerous. Because if we don't have it, we fall prey to, and people around us fall prey to what we call, or theologians call, the law of bringing forth. What is the law of bringing forth? You know, just think of it as, as you know, some of you have you know, raccoons in your yard. And raccoons bring forth raccoons. You know, foxes, you know, feral cats. They bring back cats. They bring forth what we are. And so what they were doing was, Jesus refers to them as children of hell. What are they bringing forth? Children of hell. But but I think we have to be careful as well. What do do half-hearted Christians bring forth? Half-hearted Christians. What do morally lax... Christians bring forth. Morally lax followers. What do worldly Christians bring forth? Worldly followers. What about those who who doubt the word of God? That's not really what God said. That's what the devil said, didn't he, in the Garden of Eden? Well, they bring back people who doubt such things. What about people who are into dead religion? That's these guys. What are they bringing about? people who are into dead religion. How careful leaders and all followers of Jesus must be to point people to Jesus and to the good news of the gospel, not their own agenda, not their own ideas, not their own lifestyles. 
And, and Jesus shows you how serious he is here. I mean, this language is so very serious. We talked about this Wednesday night where, where the apostle Paul says, when, when Paul speaks in the Bible, God speaks, he says this, read this letter to all the people. Take the letter. Don't pick the verses you like. Don't pick a verse here and a verse there. That's why we go line by line here. He says, and he's very serious, Paul says, very serious language. Take it all and go very carefully through it and read it to all the people. In the same way Jesus is very serious here, he says, when, when you're not doing this, when you, when you have your own agenda and your own religion, you are going to make people a son of hell. Now, to us, we think of hell, we think of, oh, you know, devil, pitchfork, you know. <laughs> and, and we're Americans, and we think, well, you know, no, that's reserved for a few people. Hitler will be there, Mussolini will be there, you know, Attila the Hun, and maybe a couple of other buddies. But, but not, no, none of us will be there. We're, we're good people. When Jesus teaches, if you reject me, you're going to be there. And what does he call them? Sons of hell. Now, again, to us, we don't think much about that. To them, what an illustration. It's the word Gehenna, refers to the, the Valley of Hinnon. You say, what's that? It was the most disgusting, vile place in all of Israel. He says, you're going to make them a son of that place. You say, what's so disgusting of that place? Centuries earlier... That's why God sent Moses in to do the mop-up job, not uh, Joshua in, to do the mop-up job that he didn't even finish on those people in the book of Joshua. People object to that. I tell people, I object to the fact that God let it go on so long. I know you object that it happened. I object that he was, he's that gracious with people. Do you know what they were doing in the Valley of Hinnon? They were actually taking babies and burning them in there. That's what they were doing. That was their religion. And Jesus says, when you take people and you teach them falsely, you make them a son of that place. That's how, that's, how, that's how serious Jesus is about this. They were actually taking little babies and burning them and calling it religion and calling it faith. Now we sit here and we go, how uncivilized. Really? Really? We don't sacrifice children? Now, I know what a lot of you are thinking, and I'm not even going to go there. How many of us can honestly say that we are not sometimes guilty of sacrificing our own children on the altar of our careers? Sacrificing our children just to make more money. Sacrificing our children on the altar of activities because we think we will not be seen as a good parent if we don't have our kid involved in every activity. It's very common for me to get emails from people, hey, we'll see you in the fall. We have baseball all summer. I've seen your kid play baseball. You should bring him to church. <laughs> I remember I was coaching in, 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 in rec league in Rockaway Township, you know, and I tried to give all the kids equal time, and people are dropping F-bombs from me, at, from the bleachers. Like, they're like, we're going to lose. I'm like, I really don't care. It's middle school rec league girls basketball. It's really not that important. And one person comes up to me and goes, they're not going to get college scholarships. I'm like, have you seen them play? (laughs) But we will sacrifice so many things 
and we'll sacrifice our kids. How many people are sacrificing their kids on the altar of political correctness in this day and age? Listen, I know, especially for you parents, you're going to make mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes. But I think the biggest and greatest mistake of all is not trying and making excuses about it. It's not trying to live the life and tell our kids and tell other people the good news of Jesus Christ. So that ends the introduction in the first section of the woes. We've seen the religious leaders, they shut the door to the kingdom of heaven in the name of religion, in the name of God. And Jesus is like, how dare you? How dare you? They steal from unsuspecting people who are in a really vulnerable spot and are looking for hope. And you pick their pockets. Jesus, how dare you? What's his answer to them? John 10, 7 through 10. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Not I am a door. I am the door. I am the only way into heaven. Verse 8, all whoever came before me, talking about the religious leaders, are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief, those crooks, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. We also saw that the religious leaders traveled far to make a convert of themselves. And those converts ended up in hell. But in John chapter 6, we hear about Jesus traveled all the way from heaven to make converts for heaven. John 6, 37 through 40, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. If you're here today and you're, a follow, you're not a follower of Jesus, that verse is for you. That is God's word for you today. If you will come to him, he will not refuse you. He will not cast you out. If you say, I come because I know I'm a sinner that needs a savior, he will not cast you out. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to live a perfect life in your place to die a sinner's death in your place and to prove that it was sufficient, God rose him from the dead. Verse 39, this is the will. Notice how many times this will word will is used. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose, of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but I should raise it up at the last day. Friend, if you're walking around constantly afraid that you make one little mistake, and somebody has convinced you that you're going to lose your salvation, Jesus just thwarted that. Jesus just debunked that. Jesus said, if my father gave you to me, if you put, and how do you know? Because you put your trust in him. If my father gave you to me, then I will not lose you. I will not let go of you. Verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes, to believe is to put your trust. Picture Jesus on the cross. Put your trust in him instead of yourself. In him, 
may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So today, let me ask you, will you, will you turn from false teaching to Jesus? Will you take off the, the false face of religion, trying to look spiritual when you're really not, trying to look good in front of a bunch of people when you're really not? Will you admit your hypocrisy? Will you admit the, the weaknesses that you have, that you know that are sin, you're just so weak, and you know that you need a Savior? Will you put your trust in Jesus Christ today? Because here's the reality, and it's a, it's a, it's a tough one, but it's true. If you're not a follower of Jesus, he is not safe. He is not safe at all. But if you put your trust in Jesus, you will be right there, able to find out that though he's not always seemingly safe, he is always, always good. Let's pray.